Thank you all for worshiping with us. Uh, really big props to our graphics design department for coming up with this screen, um, for this uh, title screen. Um, they worked really hard on that, like five minutes. But uh, uh, if, uh, if you're not familiar with what that's supposed to be, it'll make more sense in a minute. And if it never makes sense, then hopefully the rest of the message does. Uh, if you have a Bible, I would love for you to open up with me to 1 Samuel chapter 1. Uh, we are going to be putting uh, three anchor verses on the screen for you this morning before we get into 1 Samuel, uh, because kind of the inspiration behind this conversation and behind this series and this study that we're starting today uh, comes from a, a collection of verses that I, I could not Honestly, I didn't feel like it was right just to pick one. Uh, and, and they're kind of in and of themselves enough that I think just showing you the three will help you, uh, will kind of show you how they connect. And I encourage you, if you want to, as we get to those verses, um, to look at them in your own Bibles, highlight them, underline them, hopefully memorize them. Uh, feel free to turn to those verses as we get to them, uh, but they'll be on the screen for everybody to look at. And uh, I encourage everybody uh, as we get to those to uh, commit them to memory. And then we'll get into 1 Samuel in just a little bit. So uh, the title of this series is On Loan. Uh, not as in I went to the bank and took out a loan, but as in uh, something was given to us and we are aware or we are becoming aware uh, that it doesn't belong to us and that one day, one day, it'll go back to who it came from. So that's why the first message is called Back to Him. Um, growing up, uh, borrowing things and renting things was a pretty regular part of my, uh, my life and my activity. And, and as a kid, uh, you know, you'd often discover that someone else had something you really wanted. And I think maybe you, you've uh, experienced this before. Uh, and it doesn't have to be exclusive to being a kid. Adults, we, we go through this too. But as a kid, there was something really special about seeing that somebody else had something you never saw before, didn't know existed, or maybe you heard about, uh, but you didn't know anybody that owned it. And then finally you find out that your cousin, your neighbor, your classmate, or somebody that you, you meet has that thing. And it was really awesome uh, to, to get to, to know somebody that had something that you wanted. And maybe you had that instinct like I had, and I'm sure I learned it, where you would ask them or you would really kind of work up the nerve to ask them, can I buy borrow that sometimes. Has anybody ever used that phrase before or asked that question before? Can I borrow that sometimes? And maybe you're like me, you're a little bit ashamed to ask, not because you, you, you were worried they would say no, but because you kind of felt bad to ask them for something that you really wanted and you wouldn't blame them for never wanting to let go of. Uh, but I think we live in a culture where, you know, we're all, we try to be neighborly and friendly and, you know, we, we like to, to be good to each other and especially family and, and friends. So we all probably grew up uh, using that phrase often. Hey, can I borrow that sometimes? And, and to be quite honest, there were several occasions as a kid where sometimes that borrowed thing would just kind of linger around. And, and maybe y'all can relate to this, where sometimes you borrowed something and, and you intended to give it back and, and you expected them to ask for it back. But after a while, it kind of just lingered around, right? And, and you know, you kind of, you might not have put it with your stuff, but it kind of set to the side. But after a while, that borrowed thing just became your thing. 
You know, I've got books and, and games and other items that I borrowed from people. Uh, and, and for whatever reason, either I never gave them back. And, and I told Eric this morning that I borrowed something from him back in like 1998 and I never gave it back to him. I, I promise, and he knows where it's at. He, he, he knows where I'm at, right? He sees me a lot. Um, and he knows where I live. Um, but he's okay with it. We made peace. You're okay if I keep that for a little while? Yeah, he's, he's good with it. Uh, I'm not going to sell it. It's worth a little bit, but um, I'm not going to sell it um, unless things get real rough. But I'll split the profits with you. Um, um, I, I'm, I'm the kind of person that I would hold on to something like that forever, even if I, I mean, I wouldn't let people go hungry, but you know, so I got to watch what I say there now that I'm got married with kids. So I, I, I have, Eric, let me borrow some, something that uh, I'm really grateful for. And, and maybe you've borrowed something from somebody before and, and you're aware that it, you know, it belongs to them, but they're okay with you having kind of taken it into your possession. You know, kids can be fickle. Um, you know, I, sometimes you love something and then you let somebody borrow it. And a week later, you're like, I don't even know if I ever want that back. And, and there's been times where I loan something to somebody and they say, hey, you know, I need to give it back to you. And I'm like, just keep it, you know? I mean, I don't really use it and I don't really care about it. And, and you, you seem to be enjoying it. So just keep it. And there are times where people let me borrow something and they would say those magic words, you should just keep it. And after all, I should pay you for it. And I didn't really want to pay them for it. But thankfully they say, no, you just keep it. And as a kid or as a young person, that was really exciting to hear somebody say, just keep it, even though you knew it really wasn't yours. So, now, I, these, the, there are things that I remember telling people that they could keep after a while. And there are things that I still remember and I still have uh, that I look at and I'm thinking to myself, that's really not mine, even though it kind of is in my possession. So maybe y'all can relate to that. Um, maybe it's just me, but maybe I think y'all can relate. There are things that have been in my possession for a long, long time that I still remember they are borrowed or they are on loan. Maybe you've got that thing in your garage or that tool or that you know, instrument or something in your, your, your barn or in your backyard or leaned up against the house that you come across it and you know, it, it might look like it's in your stuff, but you know in your mind and you have a registry in your mind when you look at it. Maybe it's in your kitchen, maybe it's in your drawer as you, you know, cook or whatever. You, you, you pull something out and every time you use that thing, you remind, you're, you're reminded that hey, this is my mom's or this is my neighbor's or this is my you know, cousin's. Uh, and, and you're reminded it doesn't really belong to me. Now, does anybody, uh, does anyone else have that sort of feeling with something that technically isn't yours, yet it's remained in your possession for so long? Maybe, maybe it's just me, but when I use those things that aren't mine, they feel different to me. Even if I've had it for years and years and someone has told me to keep it, when I use it, something tells me, this really isn't mine. And, and I kind of treat it differently. I kind of treat it better than maybe I would if it was mine straight up. You know, and, and it's funny, even after they've told me a dozen times, it's yours, keep it. I still handle it differently. Uh, and, and I'm a little bit more delicate with it because, hey, they might ask for it back one day and I don't want to give them something broken. Um, but, but speaking of which, when I was a kid, I loved renting things. So not just borrowing things from somebody, but I loved going to the rental store. Uh, and I grew up again in the heyday of the video store phenomenon. And there was a few in town, right? Village Video up at the old Lowe's and the one up here at the, the yogurt place, I forget its name. Um, and then there was Hollywood Video that opened up when I was a kid. That was really my favorite place to go. But you know, in the 80s and 90s, uh, video store, I think all of you probably either yourself or for your kids or grandkids, you remember going to the video store. And I guess, you know, VHS tapes, I've been told were so expensive. And some of you are like, what, what's that? VHS tapes and even DVD tapes in, or DVDs in the original, in the early days, 
They were so expensive that, you know, uh, buying one yourself was, you know, 50, 60, 80 dollars, but, you know, renting one was something that was affordable. But rental stores had such extreme policies, right, that when you would rent them, uh, they, they would treat you like you were, they were literally handing you a piece of gold uh, because of, uh, you know, you were renting it for four dollars or whatever, but they treated like they were giving you something that was really uh, expensive. And I guess, in, you know, in, in relativity, it was. Uh, but, you know, and, and I think everybody remembers if you rented something from, from the rental video store, or that, that, that sticker that was on it, you know, be kind and rewind. Um, and I always was, was afraid that if I didn't rewind, would I get in trouble? Uh, you know, maybe you didn't rewind and you, I don't remember if I ever, I don't, I didn't get in trouble. I mean, they weren't the police, but you're right. I mean, I would always worry, you know, hey, what if I don't rewind? And what if they, you know, say, hey, you owe us money and however they enforce that. Um, but then there was, then there was the, the, the most dreadful part of the whole experience, uh, the, the late fees. And I'm, I'm pretty sure, that I'm still, this is the reason I'm so paranoid about making payments on time as an adult. And why, when I am in any kind of debt, I'm so stressed out because as a kid, um, we always had late fees for videos and, and games and stuff that we rented. Uh, you know, we lived out of town, outside of town. So, you know, we would go into town on Friday or whatever, and then the, the, it would be due back on Monday, but we wouldn't always be going to town uh, on Monday or, or at the beginning of the week. So, you know, it was just like this constant cloud looming over me that I, I and even though no, I, didn't, I didn't pay for it, but, uh, you know, I was always aware that, you know, when we went back, they would say, hey, you owe us, you know, double, triple what you actually, you know, paid for, uh, and, and you could have outright bought it at that point. Um, um, but I, late fees always stress me out. As I got older and I would pay for it myself, I would always have like $20, $30 worth of late fees and it would just really get under my skin and I would feel really dumb about it, but I would always would just leave it at home. Um, but, uh, you know, that's, that's how video stores, I guess, made their money back in the day. And, and, and I used to love going to the video store because there was so, it was so cool walking into a store that had literally everything, you know, you could ever imagine checking out. Uh, and, and I guess, you know, the original version of the video store was just the public library, which, you know, I didn't really go to the one in town because I had one at school. Um, but, uh, you know, growing up, uh, go, uh, part of the library, going to the library was just an everyday, you know, every week thing at school. Uh, you know, and I remember checking out books and, and from the school library. And when it came to reading and handling things, uh, whether it was from the video store or from the library, um, when, when I would take that book home or that movie home or whatever home, um, I would have this nerve wracking reminder uh, uh, that this wasn't mine. And I would be super worried about throwing the, putting the book in my bag or putting the, you know, letting the, the tape get messed up on, on the coffee table. I'd be very worried uh, about, hey, what if something happens to this because it, it's not mine? And, and again, I wasn't aware of how much the book actually cost or the movie actually cost, but it was just kind of this idea that, hey, this doesn't belong to me. And, and I guess I got to take extra good care of it. Um, now, honestly, having rented so much as a kid, these experiences of bringing books home that didn't belong to me, they actually had a tremendous impact on how I took care of my own stuff. Um, I, you know, I own a lot of physical media that really serves no purpose now other than just sitting on a shelf um, but, uh, and, and being in boxes. Uh, but, you know, from books and, and, and movies and stuff, I, I, I'm pretty sure that, that there's this ingrained sense of taking care of things uh, that, that is in me because I rented so much and I checked so much out and, and I was always, especially excited to get my own copy of something that I rented a lot or checked out a lot because I was, you know, extra determined to take good care of it and, and you know, be a good owner of whatever it was. You know, I cherished those sorts of things. And, and sometimes one of my favorite things that would happen is the video store, the library would put things for sale that they had been renting out for so long. And, you know, you'd go in every once in a while and there'd be that, that little kiosk at the front that they would give you the chance to buy something that you only otherwise 
could find at the rental store in the, uh, on the library shelves. Um, so I used to look forward to the book fair every year um, or when the video store would, would, would sell their stuff because getting the chance to own something that I had rented so much and probably had rented it, you know, I used to rent you know, back before the Star Wars movies were in print like they are or like they were later in the 90s, I used to rent the same movie over and over and over again, just thinking, you know, wow, I'd love to own this, but you couldn't go and buy it, right? There weren't, weren't digital stuff, so you couldn't go on the internet and download it. You know, I would just rent the same thing over and over and over again, and I probably paid for it, you know, 20, 30 times. Uh, but again, that was the only way of getting it. But then every once in a while, you'd find out that, hey, they're having that for sale, or there's a book fair, or there's a store uh, there's a sale going on inside the store. And when I ever, whenever I got my own copy of it, um, I would be extra intentional about taking good care of it. Now, if you're wondering, this is the origin story for how I now have a house full of books and mag- with a room full of books and magazines and, and movies and games in it because I, I started out as this kid that was obsessed with taking care of things and collecting things. And sooner than later, I just kind of had to make a whole room where I could just put all this stuff in because I didn't have anywhere else to put it. And I can't get rid of it. I mean, it means too much to me at this point. Um, and y'all, I'm sure, share that sentiment. Uh, but, but it all started with me renting in stuff and vowing to take good care of it. And if I ever got my own copies of it, I was going to be a good owner of whatever it was. And I guess the same thing works for, you know, whether it's a car, whether it's a piece of equipment, right? Using outside a car, anything else, right? Even a home, you know, when you actually get to own something, you're more, uh, more intentional about taking good care of it. And that rental experience, that loaning experience makes you better at it. Now, I'm sure you can chalk this up for a lot of different reasons, but honestly, I believe my experiencing renting and borrowing impacted my habits in owning. The weight of handling something the weight of handling something that didn't belong to me had an undeniable impact on how I handled the stuff that did eventually belong to me. Now, as a teenager, as a young adult, as I acquired more things and more valuable things, I've remained very intentional about keeping everything in good condition. So as all that happened, as a teenager and as a young adult, um, this kind of coincided with a deeper understanding of life in general And as I began to grow in my faith and as I began to get called into ministry, I realized that something, this this lighthearted analogy of renting and borrowing actually had a very serious connection to how our lives should relate to the one who made us. As I begin to understand the Bible more and more and I begin to examine my own life in relation to God more and more, suddenly it dawned on me that really all of my life should be lived in this way. That this idea of having this weight on my shoulders, this sense of I've got to take good care of this because this isn't mine, that began to influence how I looked in the mirror and how I looked up from the altar to the God who created me, who created all of us. That I began to realize that I should conduct my life with a constant awareness that nothing Actually, and again, this is hard for our brains to accept, but I think you can see the through line. I begin to conduct my life and I begin to live with a constant awareness that nothing, and I know that's hard to say nothing because we bought some stuff and we paid for some stuff, but ultimately nothing actually belongs to me. In the grand scheme of things, isn't that the reality that we all live in? 
without having all the verses and chapters cited and sourced, fully understanding all of the Bible, I think, for me, this became an undercurrent in my life. Even before I ever could ever attempt to understand the Bible in full, this began to weigh on my shoulders just with a few verses that I heard here and there. And as I began to grow as a Christian, it started to weigh on me pretty heavy just from contemplating the fact that all of creation is the extension of the glory, love, and vision of a single God. Now, you may not agree with me on this, and, and maybe, you know, wherever you're at in your, your walk, if you're a believer, you, you, I think you should agree with me, but maybe you don't. But maybe you ever thought about it this way, that all of creation is the single extension of the glory as in God's great and awesome, you know, splendor and majesty, the love that he has in his heart for all that, that caused him to do all this, in the vision, the plans that he has. All of creation is the extension of a single God, that everything that exists comes from a single shared source, and that is a single shared God. And, and there's a point in every one of our lives, and again, you might not have reached this point yet, but maybe today is the point for you to reach it and the place for you to reach it, that there's a point in every one of our lives where we go from, being, when we go from hearing about this and, 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 and you know, saying, yeah, I believe that when we're in a certain place at a certain time, there's a point in our lives where we go from being told this to actually believing this, that all of creation is the extension of the glory and the love and the vision of the God above us. Probably one of the earliest you know, revelations for me, and as I began to read the Bible, I think all of us probably at some point in our youth or at some point in our young Christian life or before we became a Christian, we all opened the Bible to the first page. And, and I'm sure all of us have had, you know, had the experience of reading Genesis 1-1, where Moses tells us, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And maybe you've heard that so much again and again and again. It doesn't really register with you, but here's what the Bible's telling us, that there was a time when none of this existed except there was a God who existed separate from it, above all of it, beyond all of it, in a world that we couldn't even imagine that before we ever existed, before this world ever existed, before the universe as we know it ever existed, there was a God. And if not for his intention, his glory and his love and his his vision, none of the rest of it would exist. That includes you. That includes me. That includes everything that we have, that you and I are the product of, the result of a single God saying, let there be. And if he had not said, let there be, nobody would have said to him, let there be, because he makes the orders, right? Do you ever stop and think about that? You know, us and our independence and we're big and bad and we're on our own and we do our own thing and we own our own stuff. Have you ever stopped and realized that unless God said, let there be, there would be nothing? We all memorize this as kids, but has it ever really sunk in on you? You know, I, I learned it in Sunday school. I heard it in a bedtime Bible storybook. But as I began to grow older, it began to really dawn on me. And, and the assumption of God, acknowledging and staying aware that he is at the center of creation, especially my world, that began to really rack my brain and really make me question 
what am I doing with the life that was given to me? You know, as kids, we sort of go along with it. We grow older. Every one of us has to come to terms with the fact that everything in creation came from and comes from God. As kid, uh, at some point, it will dawn on us in such a way that it impacts how we look at everything from the obvious things to the finer details of life. Now, maybe you've never really given much thought to it. Maybe today is the day when you finally give thought to it, at least for the next few minutes. Wrap your mind around this reality. I love the way the, the disciple John puts it as he reflects on how God created the world. John says, all things were made through God and without him was not, was not anything made that was made. So this is John's way of bringing it to you and me. That you've heard in the beginning God created, you've heard it said of old, that way long, long ago, uh, in, 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 you know, in a galaxy above us, right? In a universe above us, God created. You've heard about it. But John brings it to our laps here and John brings it to us in a personal way. And for our consideration, for your consideration, what we should hear in that verse is that all things means our things means my things. Do you follow me there? All things were made through him. Our things were made through him. My things were made through him. My life was made. When I first began considering that my life was not just some happy accident, but it was actually part of God's vision, God's extension of his glory and love, it dawned on me. It began to sink in on me that I couldn't possibly be at my own leisure if God created me. And again, I didn't need a verse. I didn't need an explanation. I didn't need, you know, everybody, somebody to really walk me through it. I just began to piece a couple verses together. And there's so much to the gravity of that reality. The God of the universe who designed the planets with a purpose and placed them into orbit and wired the laws of physics. The God of the universe who created this planet and designed it from the atmosphere to the oceans. The God who made the plants and the animals and all of nature and harmonized it all to work together. That same God made me and that same God made you. Do you ever think about that? The same God who made the galaxies that we can see with just a, as a speck in a telescope. The God who made everything as designed as it is. The God who put all the elements in the world that allowed everything else to be created that we use on a daily basis from technology to automation. That same God made you. And if that same God made me, clearly, certainly, my life was not my own. And is not my own. And if I am from him, and this is my conclusion, this is how my mind works, and maybe it's not how your mind works, but I want you to kind of lead you in this direction. If I am from him, someday I and all that I have will go back to him. Because isn't that how it works at the rental store? You rent it, and there's a due date, right? You check it out, and it's got a sticker on it. It says, this isn't yours. And you have to turn it back in. Guess what? You and I have a sticker on our face, right? An image that reminds us we are not our own. We are made in the image of the God of the universe. Do you think about that every once in a while?
Listen, the sun does not look like God. The planets do not look like God. The animals don't look like God. The oceans, the the atmosphere don't look like God. But guess who does? You do. And one day, every single one of us, we came from him and we will go back to him. Whether we turn ourselves in or not. Now, I'm sure all of this line of thought was influenced by being raised in church and hearing preaching and teaching. But again, there's part of me, and I think there's part of you, that this stuff just resonates with, and it's almost self-evident once we start talking about it, isn't it? And even though you might can forget it and you might can ignore it, can you really ever escape this once it gets in your mind? I hope you can't. The idea that nothing really belongs to us, including our own lives. We all exist out of an overflow of God's creative glory, love, and vision. Ultimately, our lives will return to him. It's impossible and it's unlikely that we are not held to some measure of accountability, that we don't have some responsibility for what we do in the interim. We came from him. We were going to return to him. It's impossible to imagine that what we do in the middle is not going to matter, right? There's so much matter-of-fact scripture that we can highlight, and we will do that over the next couple of weeks, I promise you. But this message is all about getting your minds to think. And I want this to linger over your heart. And again, this is not what I can't do the work, but the Spirit of God can to create a sense of hunger and desire within all of us, sending us into the Bible, craving for answers and insight because maybe it just settled in on you. Maybe it'll happen over the next few weeks. Maybe a year from now, it'll dawn on you. As the Apostle Paul put it, that for none of us lives to himself or herself and none of us dies to himself or herself. We all live because of God and we all will one day return him. At some point in your life, the most crucial consideration you will ever have with yourself and your families and those closest to you is around this reality that there's definite, there's no way around it, this revelation about your existence. None of us lives to ourselves, in and of ourselves, by ourselves, for ourselves, and none of us are going to die to ourselves, in and of ourselves, by ourselves, and for ourselves. We all exist because of God, for God, and unto God and one day all of us will come to the end of our lives and cross over into eternity and return to the one who made us and here's the thing when you get there nobody's gonna say well they don't belong to him because it will be written all over us because we were made in his image and ignore it all we want to, and deny it all we want to, and try to get away from it all we want to, every one of us, when we stand before our Creator, everyone in heaven will say, they look just like Him. There's no denying where they came from. And here they are to give an account for what they did with the life that wasn't theirs at all. At that point, your trophy case won't matter. Your credit score won't matter. Your photo album won't matter. None of those things that we live for or we focus on. 
Everything will be secondary and will only matter insofar as how it contributed to our life in dedication, hopefully in dedication, to God. Because at that point, what was borrowed will be returned. What was on loan will be returned home. What was checked out will be checked in forever. Not everyone lives with this attitude, this awareness. Plenty of people get by just fine without ever considering it. But that's all I'm asking you to do today is consider this. Now, if you're a Christian, I don't think you can ignore it. The commands and scriptures that make it pretty clear how you should conduct and manage and dedicate your life. But again, we'll get there. Today is about planting the seed and letting the Spirit of God take you on a personal journey because I want this to be an experience that you have for yourself and I want you to realize this for yourself in a way that it changes how you do everything that you do from now on. So what I want to do to wrap up today is I want to look at a story in the Bible that I think really encapsulates the crossroads we are all at. Every day of our lives, whether we're going to live under this umbrella or not, the story begins with the mother, with a mother and her son. And as it goes, it becomes clear that their story was really bringing into view what was going on around them in the world and the country and the different paths people were taking. The story is found in 1 Samuel and the setup is like this. There's a young woman named Hannah and she's in a pretty messy relationship. Hannah couldn't have kids. And in those days, that was grounds for divorce. That if you couldn't produce a child for your husband, then your husband had every obligation, every re legal right to divorce you. And if he wanted to keep you around, he had that right as well. Again, because women were so uh, vulnerable and so at risk. So the husband takes another wife and he never really divorced Hannah out of sympathy because he felt sorry for her because where else is she going to go? And Hannah didn't know what to do. So Hannah is really at the mercy of the mess she was in. And the story goes that the man's new wife had plenty of kids and this made Hannah feel even worse about her already unfortunate life. And you would think, I'm sure she wondered, how did I get here? What, is this really how life is supposed to be? You can read between the lines, Hannah was really in a mentally destructive situation. Her kind of husband was doing her a favor by taking care of her. Her husband's new wife was gloating over her that she could have kids and, 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 and Hannah couldn't and rubbing that prosperity in her face. One day, Hannah had enough. She didn't know how she could go on like this and she thought maybe a life in poverty would be better than this twisted mess I'm in. But seriously, she was devastated. She didn't know what to do. She was at the end of a rope. And what's most humbling to us all these years later is that she came to the conclusion that she was where God wanted her to be. And again, you would think, Hannah, just leave. Just get yourself some freedom. But she didn't have any options. So Hannah makes a decision. I'm gonna go to God and I'm gonna pray that he might make something good come out of my mess. Hannah thought that she had already basically used her chance. She'd already kind of reached the point in her life where she couldn't make anything else happen out of her life. She'd already, already kind of burned those bridges. So she wanted a child for her own. And she knew she was never gonna get away from her husband. She was never gonna get out of this twisted family situation. So all she really wanted was to be able to leave behind a legacy for the future. And that's where I wanna jump into the story. 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse number 9. Hannah arose after they finished eating and drinking in Shiloh. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat of the doorpost of the tabernacle of the Lord. 
she was in the bitterness of soul and prayed to the Lord and wept in anguish. And she made a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me and not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a male child, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall come upon his head. So Hannah says, God, I know I've pretty much used up what chance I had in this life for whether whose fault it is. Would you give me a child? And I promise you, if you give me a child, I will give him right back to you. Now you can read on and see that the priest treated her rather rudely as well. And this emphasized how off tilt the world was. Even the people of Israel, the people of God had little regard for God. The very land that, was living, that they were living in as a gift, it was given to them. They weren't 100 years removed from the entrance into the land. And everyone had taken their lives into their own hands. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes, even the religious people. Nobody lived as if their lives belonged to God. Even the stories of the Exodus were so fresh and they still weren't weighing on the shoulders of the people. At this point in the story, really Hannah starts the road to revival for the nation. And as Hannah throws herself into the mercies of God, it's Hannah's heart for God that actually brings the nation back into the view of how they were all supposed to be living their lives in the first place. Over in verse 19 and 20, Hannah's prayer is answered. And the scripture says this, they rose up early in the morning and worshiped before the Lord and returned and came to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew his wife, Hannah, and the Lord remembered her. So it came to pass in the process of time that Hannah conceived and bore a son and called his name Samuel, saying, because I have asked for him from the Lord. Now the Hebrew word for Samuel sounds like the Hebrew word for, or the Hebrew word that literally translates, I have asked or I have desired. But there's something deeper in this word that I want to show you. That you could almost translate that, that statement as, I have asked to borrow him from the Lord. That the, the, the Hebrew there means not just have asked God to give me something, but I've asked God to let me borrow something that I know is going to go back to him one day. And what was her promise? If you give me a child, I will give him back. And she names him this word that literally is the Hebrew for borrowed. Hannah had an insight about life that nobody else did in her generation. And few of us do now. Hannah understood her life as borrowed, as on loan from God. And God gave her a son she wanted to instill in his heart. And it would in turn lead the nation, give the nation a chance to see the light themselves. The story goes that after he was weaned, she brought him to the temple for a dedication service, but it wasn't ordinary, down in verse 24. Now, when she weaned him, she took him up with her with three bulls, one ephah of flour and skin of wine and brought him to the house of the Lord in Shiloh. The child was young. They slaughtered a bull and brought the child to Eli the priest. And she said, oh Lord, as your soul lives, my Lord, I am the woman who stood by you here praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition, which I ask of him. Therefore, and here's the, here's the, we see the Hebrew that she named him after again. Therefore, I also have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he shall be lent to or lent back to 
the Lord. Now, again, the Hebrew would ring loud in our ears if we could read it in the original language, but here's what the text is telling us. She borrowed him from the Lord and she loans him back to the Lord. Do you see the picture there? She borrowed him and now she returns him. Again, Samuel in Hebrew sounds like borrowed, sounds like loan. She borrowed him and now she returns him. After all that, she doesn't even keep Samuel for herself. She dedicates him to the Lord into a life of service in the house of, the God, of God. And this would prove so crucial for the fate of Israel as time would pass. As time went on, the nation fell into a very dark place spiritually. The scripture says that even the priesthood was corrupt. And the story goes that young Samuel grew up in the temple under Eli the priest. And one night, Samuel heard a voice calling for him. You can read about it over in chapter 3. That Samuel hears someone calling, Samuel, Samuel. And Eli says, when you hear the voice, it could be the Lord. He didn't know because he was far off from where he should be. He said, Samuel, when you hear the voice, stand up and say, your servant is listening. And over in Samuel chapter 3, verse number 11, the Lord says this, Behold, I will do something in Israel in which both ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. Again, Samuel, I'm gonna do something through your life that's gonna change or give the nation a chance to change. It's through the life of Samuel that God brings a reckoning on the way Israel had been doing things and showing them the way they should be doing things. And again, it's all a play on Samuel's name. Samuel's name was a reminder that their lives were borrowed. Our lives are borrowed from God. Our lives should be lived with a readiness to return to him. And when they would have heard Samuel's name, again, we just hear Samuel. We don't know what the meaning of that is, but when they would have heard Samuel, they would have heard the word borrowed, loaned. Try as they might, Samuel, try as he might, Samuel tried to get through to the nation, but he wouldn't, could not get through to them. He led the nation as a judge, but the nation did not like his emphasis of a life being borrowed and on loan. The nation wanted to be like other nations, which were all controlling their own destiny, relishing in their own sovereignty and autonomy. And at some point, the nation comes to Samuel and they demand that Samuel give them a king. And again, think about the language. Samuel means they were borrowed from God. They're on loan from God. But the nation comes to Samuel and says, Samuel, we are demanding God give us what we want. When Samuel was meant to remind them that we should be asking what God wants. But the nation had flipped the script. Rather than considering God's will, they declare their own wills. And this is the tension that all of our lives find themselves in. When we view our lives as ours, that doesn't preclude belief in God. Plenty of people view God as our own personal commodity. Even Israel demanded of him rather than seeking his will. Samuel was meant to remind them their lives were borrowed, but they rejected that model. And God told Samuel, Samuel, they haven't rejected you. They've rejected me. Give them what they want. So Samuel gave them what they wanted. He gave them a king, a king named Saul. Saul's life and leadership embodied what it meant to miss the plot in life as a whole. 
Saul lived an entitled life. He created an entitled, self-serving nation. Eventually, Samuel dies, and Saul fumbles the ball again. A young boy named David comes on the scene, and Saul is paranoid that he's going to be replaced. He tears the nation apart, trying to get more power for himself, and he makes the nation more vulnerable against its real enemies by fighting against David. At the end of Saul's reign, he's desperate, and he hasn't been able to talk to God in a long, long time. So in poetic fashion, he actually seeks out a way to talk to Samuel, even though Samuel's been gone for years. Samuel was the only one who seemed to have it figured out. Saul was so perplexed. How did I, the king who was given everything on a silver platter, mess this up so badly? But he couldn't see for himself that if only he had lived his life as if it had been borrowed, if only he had lived his life as if it really was given to him and could be taken back from him. If only he had lived his life and ruled as if he was just a steward of what belonged to God. If only he had lived his life and ruled the nation as if it was on loan, as if it was barred, as if it would one day return to the hands of the one who gave it to him. But it was too late. Everything was unraveling, but it didn't stop him from trying. I'm going to read from 1 Samuel 28 in closing. You can flip over there if you'd like to. But this is Saul's attempt, one last attempt to try to cling to his power. The scripture says that Saul was looking for a witch, a medium, some sort of soothsayer that might could bring up the dead because the only person he thought he could get any sense out of was Samuel, and Samuel was dead. So he goes and finds a witch in a place called Endor. And here's what the story tells us. 1 Samuel 28, verse, verse 8. Saul disguised himself and put on other clothes and went out and two men with him and they came to the woman by night. He said, please conduct a seance for me and bring up for the one I shall name to you. Then the woman said to him, look, you know what Saul has done, how he has cut off the mediums and the spirits from the land. Why then do you lay a snare for my life to cause me to die? Saul swore to her by the Lord saying, as the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. Then the woman said, who shall I bring up for you? And he said, bring up Samuel for me. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. The woman spoke for Saul saying, why have you deceived me? For you are Saul. So she was surprised that all this happened, but God clearly let it. The king said, do not be afraid. What did, I, what did you see? And the woman said to Saul, I saw a spirit ascending out of the earth. He said to her, what is it from? What is his form? And she said, an old man coming up and they're covered with a mantle. So Saul perceived it was Samuel and he stooped with his face to the ground and bowed down. Now Samuel said to Saul, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? And Saul answered, I'm deeply distressed for the Philistines make war against me and God has departed from me and does not answer me anymore, neither by prophets nor by dreams. Therefore, I have called you that you may reveal to me what I should do. And Samuel said, listen to these words, why do you ask me seeing the Lord has departed from you and become your enemy? And the Lord has done for himself as he spoke by me, for the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor, David. Saul, don't you realize this kingdom and this life was never yours? And now it's being taken from you and being given to somebody else. But shouldn't you have expected that? If you had only paid attention early on, you would have realized 
that all of our lives are borrowed and eventually they all will be returned. Earlier in Saul's life, he made this self-proclamation, I have played the fool and erred exceedingly. Indeed he had. All because he failed to follow the way of Samuel. That reminds us all our lives are on loan. They should all be dedicated to God because one day they will return to him forever. One day they will re- there will be a return date for all of us. And really what it all comes down to is did we live our lives as if they were borrowed, as if they were on loan from God? If we do that, if we live from a place relying on, waiting on, consulting with the Lord rather than living with an on-demand, expecting attitude, it really comes down to that that, that duality. Do we live as if our lives are on loan or do we live as if everything is on demand? And honestly, in our world today, everything is on demand, right? We have access to everything we want at the click of of a button or a screen. We live as if everything is ours and we can get anything we want. But the reality is we absolutely don't own anything. It's all borrowed and there is a due date. What would it look like if we lived like nothing really belongs to us? What would life be like if we live from an understanding that everything, including us, is borrowed and on loan from God. What would life look like if we live like nothing really belongs to us? We'd have a greater understanding, a greater accountability and responsibility, a greater preparedness and readiness for what God wants to do in our lives. Ultimately, we'd be more gracious, we'd be more decent, we'd be more devoted to the one we've borrowed everything from. Right? Again, what if this verse from from Romans, what if it was ingrained in our minds? None of us lives to themselves. None of us dies. We, We all exist because of and for our creator. So again, I ask you this question. What would your life look like if you began living like it wasn't really your life at all? Maybe you already do this, but could you do it more than you do? It's just part of your life lived in honor of God. What would your life look like as a whole if you began living like it wasn't really your life at all? Maybe today's the day you bring it all back. You bring yourself back and begin that conversation with him about what life would look like, what life can look like back in the hands, resting in the hands, led by the hands of the one who made you. What can your life look like? Back in the hands, resting in the hands, led by the hands of your creator. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would, through your Holy Spirit, you would rest on all of our shoulders today and you would confront us and you would press upon us this question. Are you living like your life is not your own, because it isn't. All of our lives belong to you. We are from you and we are headed back to you. And thanks to Jesus, you've made a way for us to know you and to follow you and to make the most of this life. But today, God, my goal and and, and what I pray you would do in the hearts of your people is just stir us up. Stir us up and, and, and try us 
in our heart of hearts. Are we living like our lives belong to you? And if we aren't, isn't it about time we bring them back to you? Isn't it about time we return to you what came from you in the first place? The evidence is everywhere. It's in the mirror. It's right in front of us. Maybe today we respond by returning to the one who made us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.